Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 27th, 2019. This is episode 2460 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Thursday, but we're going to do a Just Jack show today instead of a call-in show. I've been enjoying doing more of the individual topics and kind of digging into them, so we're going to keep doing that at least every other week type of thing. Today we're going to talk about the result, the role of resistant varieties of vegetables in disease uh, fighting, combat prevention, management, what have you. And here's what I mean by that: uh, a lot of us in this, you know, in this this community anyway, we, we like to grow our own food. And it is very frustrating for people. They think that they've done everything right. They provide good fertilizer, what have you. Uh, they got good soil. They've worked really hard on it. They do composting or, or whatever it is. And they plant their plants, and the plants start going like gangbusters, and then all of a sudden something goes wrong. Uh, your beans develop something called rust or bacterial brown spot or halo blight, right? And all three of those kind of sort of in some ways look alike. We'll talk a little bit about what these things look like today, but I'm going to try to help you more about how to figure them out. And so this this happens, and maybe the person looks at it and goes, "I know. This thing needs more fertilizer. That's 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 what's wrong." Because initially, all of these have some kind of a look of, of a chlorosis type thing. The leaves start to turn yellow in some way, so it just it, it's underfed. So they they fertilize the plant. Next thing you know, like there's holes in the leaf, and it looks like somebody shot it with a, a little shotgun, and it it actually is bacterial brown spot. And then it gets into the, the beans themselves, and the pods are deformed, and it's like beans are supposed to be the easiest thing in the world. And well, how did this happen? What is this? And a lot of times people don't even know. They just know that it failed. Uh, you, you plant a cucumber, and all of a sudden the entire vine just dies. Uh, you plant tomatoes. They're looking really good. And then all of a sudden this kind of cancerous thing just walks up the vine and eats everything. And you're dealing with late blight, or are you dealing with first seam wilt? You don't really know. And a lot of times people are just like, ah, just it's not worth it. Uh, you grow peppers and you end up with a bacterial leaf spot, and you're not sure at first if it's an unhappy pepper or it's a you know from a lack of nutrient or a disease or is it a pest and what's going on? And I see these bugs and these little yellow and black bugs are around, and all of a sudden my plants are unhappy, but the bugs don't seem to be eating. And it just goes on and on, and. One of the things that we can do, and it's not a silver bullet, but it is very helpful, is we can identify and diagnose what's actually going on. And if it's a disease that's a bacterial or fungal or other type of disease, then we can say, hey, wait a minute, why don't we look and see if there's a particular variety of this pepper or this bean or whatever that is highly resistant to this thing. Where we get into trouble is people get that wrong. They think they have late blight in their tomatoes and they have first seam wilt. So they get a resistant to late blight variety that doesn't happen to be resistant to first seam wilt. And then, you see what I mean? And then one of the places that we really sell ourselves short in this world, especially those of us who are 
permaculture people, organic people, just all natural people, is we've wrapped up hybrid and GMO as though they're the same thing, and they're not. We'll talk about that more in a bit. But people won't go out and use hybrid varieties. And, and, and a lot of the best resistant varieties are hybrid varieties. And, you know, if I have a choice between growing a hybrid tomato uh, versus an heirloom or growing no tomatoes at all or having very poor yields, I'm going to grow the hybrid tomato. So we're going to talk about all of that today. And we're just going to go ahead and dig right on into it. Let's start out with what is the difference when we're looking at plants? See, I don't care if it's a plant that you're buying that's already started, if it's seeds that you're buying and starting your own plants or, or what have you. What is the difference between GMO, hybrids, heirlooms, and wild type? We'll start with wild type because it's the easiest one. A wild type is a, a plant that we are simply harvesting seed from the wild or somebody else did it for us and we're planting it, and it's kind of just done its own thing in nature. Nobody has said, hey, I want this thing to grow taller or more squat and shorter. I want it to be sweeter. I want it to be greener or redder or uh, start early or start late. They just, there it is, and we just harvest it. And from a standpoint of disease resistance, it's probably the strongest player in the bunch. Uh, from a standpoint of uh, survivability, strongest player in the bunch. Because it is a weed, is the best way we can think of it. It's something that grows without our help in the wild. And um, th there are some that maybe came a little bit into the world of... Uh, domestication at some point along the way, maybe through indigenous peoples, and then kind of escaped back out and did its own thing. Uh, we've recently talked about a, a, a tomato called Texas Wild Tomato. A Texas Wild Cherry Tomato is really a, um, a native wild-type tomato from Mexico with a little bit of fooling around that was done because actually all wild-type tomatoes are yellow and this thing's red, but it's got... A lot going for it. It's resistant to a lot of things, and it's it, it's got an incredible ability to survive because it is as close to a wild type without being a pure wild type as you can get. A true wild type would be um, lamb's quarters. You want to grow lamb's quarters for greens? You can go out and find wild lamb's quarters and kind of figure out where they grow. You can go out in the fall. Uh, when they've gone to seed, and you can harvest a buttload of seed in not very much time at all, and now you have a wild-type seed. That's pretty obvious. Um, an heirloom. An heirloom is simply what we call an old, open-pollinated um, variety of any kind of vegetable that will reliably reproduce in the first generation, and so on. So if we have an heirloom tomato, maybe we have something like mortgage lifters, an heirloom tomato. Uh, it's available from uh, Burpee, and it, it was originally developed by a guy back during the Great Depression. Uh, he developed this tomato that was, you know, looked better and grew better and was bigger and faster than everything uh, else that was around there. He started selling the plants and the seeds, And he used the proceeds to pay off his mortgage. So they called it Mortgage Lifter. Well, it, it, all that it is is just a tomato that, you know, if you only grow Mortgage Lifters in, in you know, close proximity to each other, and they do well and they reproduce, and you save the seeds out of them, you plant that seed, you're going to get a tomato that looks a lot like or just like the one it came from. It's not going to change form or shape. It's stable. 
All right. A hybrid is just where we take two tomatoes, for instance. Maybe one's a wild type. And we purposefully cross them. So maybe we only grow two plants and we're very careful. And when they start putting on blossoms, maybe we even put a little bag over top so that there's no way that the pollen from any other place can get there. And then we go maybe with a little brush or a, uh, something like an ear, uh, an ear swab. And we take a little bit of pollen from one and we pollinate the other and back and forth. We actually have two ways that can be crossed. The pollen from one to the... To the, the plants of the other or back the other way. And even though they're the same cross, they're 50% of each, you can actually get a different result based on the direction the cross goes. And a hybrid is just that, it's a cross. Thinking about it, though, it's not exactly the same thing, but the easiest way to think about it would be in the world of dogs. Let's say you had a pure bred, beautiful German Shepherd, and then you had a pure bred, Border Collie, beautiful lassie looking dog, right? And one of the all-time most famous crosses. It's not really a big thing anymore, but back like in the 60s and 70s, this was the this was the border doodle of the 70s. It was the Shepherd and Collie. Because it's a really great dog. You've got the temperament um, and, and attitude and intelligence of these two great breeds coming together. They're a pretty dog. Um, so you breed the Shepherd and Collie. And out comes a Shepherd Collie puppy. Now, if we take two Shepherd Collie puppies and we breed them, right, you won't get dogs that look just like their parents. Some of them will have more Shepherd characteristics and some of them will have more Collie characteristics. Okay? But that's all a hybrid is. It's not a GMO in the way that the term is used and thrown around. And that confusion has been created by the GMO industry to try to hide what they're really doing. Right? They, 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 they try to make it like, well, man's been doing genetic modification for 10,000 years. Not the way you bastards do it. And we'll get to that in a second, why I don't actually totally hate the concept of GMO. But you understand that hybrid and GMO are the same thing. Now, every heirloom that's not just basically a handed-down wild type started out as a hybrid. Here's how that works. If we make that shepherd collie, There's probably, if, we, if we, we breed those two dogs several times and have several runs of puppies, there's going to be some pups that look almost exactly the Okay, so we, we, I'm sorry. We breed the, the Shepherd and Collie. We start getting pups. Now we start breeding puppies as they grow into dogs. So we have two Shepherd Collie mixed puppies, and we breed them. And in that litter, we're going to get that, you know, kind of mixed effect. Some of them will be very shepherd-like. Some of them will be very collie-like. Some of them will kind of look like, well, I don't know. They really don't look like either one. But maybe one in ten will really look like a shepherd and collie, like the original parents. And if we select out of a couple different litters dogs that look like that, and we we breed them together, then you're still going to have this mixed effect. Some look very shepherd-like, some look very collie-like, some look like, no, and some that will look like a straight-up first crossing of a shepherd collie. But in the second time we do that, there'll be more of them. If we take from that litter, three generations in, hopefully from different crosses to keep the genetics from getting kind of interbred, and do a fourth crossing, even more 
of the dogs will look like if we just straight up mixed a shepherd collie mix. And obviously, just like plants, if we have a male shepherd to a female collie or a female shepherd to a male collie, we might get a little bit different in that first generation based on what we want. But once we start this process of crossing them and selecting them, if we do this long enough, seven, eight generations, and there's a reason for the term seven generations. In most organisms, it's seven generations necessary to stabilize things, plants and animals. By that point, you get a very reliable cross. So if we start out with two tomatoes, and we want traits from both of them, and we cross them, and then we select from seed from plants that produce something that looks like the original cross in the second, third, fourth, or fifth generation, by the time we get to the seventh, we've effectively made a new heirloom. And this is why you shouldn't be afraid to use hybrids in the first place, because that's how they all got created, again, unless they're just a wild type handed down. GMO. GMO is where we artificially interfere with the genetics of the tomato. We take a genetic component from something that can never cross with a tomato. Uh, say a cotton plant or a fish. Yes, really. We take this genetic material and we use something like a gene gun, which is a real thing, to inject this new genetic material into the DNA sequence of the plant. Or we might use something called a transmugenic virus. There's actually viruses that they can engineer that will take a piece of DNA from one thing and infect it into the other. Right? And then once that's done, you basically have a new scientifically manipulated hybrid. But instead of a hybrid of two tomatoes, maybe it's a hybrid of a cotton plant and a tomato. It could go in either direction to convey some ability to the plant that the plant would never generate, uh, uh, never have in nature, or might be very difficult for it to ever be uh, uh, to, to develop that ability or resistance uh, in 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 nature in a natural consequence. Now, before I go on, I want to talk about why I hate GMOs, but I'm not opposed to them, uh, which might sound in conflict, but it's really not. I hate GMO in the way it's used today because the companies doing it, by and large, are not doing it to convey something to the plant that would be beneficial to mankind as a whole, and that's all that they've done. Monsanto, now bear, um, does not get rich selling soybean seed. Um, they get rich selling soybeans and herbicides that get sprayed on the soybeans. So instead of genetically modifying the soybean to, let's say, naturally outcompete weeds, uh, to be a more uh, postrate, uh, wide-growing plant that is just would grow maybe more the way buckwheat does and kind of choke out weeds. That would be one thing. They engineer the soybean so it can be sprayed with Roundup, uh, and that way they can spray the food you're going to eat with an herbicide. The concept of genetically modifying plants specifically, if you could genetically modify a squash plant, so that it would be resistant or immune to vine borers and squash bugs, when there's almost nothing that naturally predates on either of them, that's appealing to me. Whether I trust a company to do it or not, especially with government interference involved, uh, is another question, but that doesn't really bother me. Genetically modifying plants so that we can ignore soil health and so that we can put toxins on them that you're going to consume, 
that bothers me. So even GMO, if they ever get it right, I may become a fan. I just haven't seen it done yet, and you can take your golden rice and shove it up your ass because it's not really a thing. It was a propaganda um, project. It's not being grown anywhere. It's not saving anybody from going blind. It's all bullshit, which is even another reason to be more skeptical of GMOs. However, genetically modifying the American chestnut is leading us to the potential that someday we may completely restore the American chestnut by creating a blight-resistant chestnut. If we can do that, I'm not totally opposed to it. I don't trust it fully, but I want to make sure that you understand science isn't the enemy. And we need to not look at science as the enemy. Your smartphone that you're listening to this podcast on, which is how the majority of you listen to your podcast, could not exist without science. The internet that I use to distribute this podcast to 200,000 people a day could not exist without science. The uh, airplane that I flew on recently when I went on vacation to Florida that made my vacation take uh, get get almost full 10 days out of it versus taking you know four days to drive, two out and two back, and only getting six, that airplane is, is not possible without science. The car I would have used as an alternative method of transportation, not possible without science. And many of the wonderful things, even in our food supply, uh, that keep people from starving to death come from science. Science is not the enemy. However, science is like a gun. My gun is not going to kill anybody. My gun is not going to help anybody rob a liquor store, and neither is yours. That doesn't mean that someone else might not pick up their gun and go put it to somebody's head in a convenience store, steal 50 bucks from them, and then shoot them even though they complied. That's something that I saw happen to somebody when I was a kid in Jacksonville, Florida. They didn't see the actual shooting, but I saw the aftermath, heard the shot. It was across the street. So I know that's a real thing. I know that a gun can be abused. The difference when it comes to science and these giant global corporations is they get government protections and they have budgets in the billions of dollars and they're able to do it in a way that affects everybody, not just one person who could have chosen possibly to have a way to defend themselves. So this is why I'm very skeptical and I'm not a fan of GMOs, but there's the, the optimist in me that believes that the right people could use this technology just the way the right people use guns at times to defend their homes or put food on their table. So I hope that makes sense. I also want to talk about something else, though, that may largely replace GMOs and uh, I think has uh, more potential to create um, plants that are disease-resistant, like we're talking about today, or plants that... Um, they, they can grow in harsher conditions and things like that, things that would be actually more beneficial to society. I reported on this years ago. There's still a lot of really cool work done, being done on it. It's called advanced genetic selection. And what advanced genetic selection does is it can analyze um, thousands upon thousands of plants and specifically select the seed to save for a specific trait. So we're literally able to identify out of a million plants the one or two that we need to work with. And I, I don't even fully understand exactly how this works. I've not been motivated enough to dig into it. But I get the basics of it. That's what it's really allowing uh, corporations to do. And people like you know Monsanto now, Bear, are doing it. What this is is shortening a natural process rather than circumventing it. If let's say we wanted a, 
a broccoli variety that was that was earlier. We got big, beautiful broccoli heads, and we got them five days earlier. This, it's possible to just simply plant a huge field of broccoli, identify all the plants that produce the earliest, let them go to seed, save the seed from them, plant them again. But what if you could know the answer to that before you planted the seeds? You already know which ones are carrying the trait you're looking for. And you only planted those. And you only planted those for the purpose of seed production. And then you were able to look at that seed and in a second generation do the same thing again or pick out another trait you want to isolate. Or maybe you wanted to pick four traits from one sampling. That's what they're able to do with this. And the reason I don't have a problem with that at all from just a practice standpoint, just from doing it, is that everything that you end up with could have been done anyway. It would have just took longer to get there. Now, what they're going to do with it, how they're going to use it maybe to create naturally herbicide-resistant plants and the damage that can be done because of that, that I don't trust. But I do think we're heading for a place where genetic modification in the way that it's done is actually a very expensive process. And genetic selection, uh, advanced genetic, rapid genetic selection, is actually uh, a lot more affordable. So I think that's where they're going to go anyway. Um, as we get into, I want to, I'm going to go through just uh, four particular very popular vegetables, give you some disease-resistant varieties and some common diseases in them. I want to talk about best practices um, and how best practices, along with using resistant varieties, is the way to go. One is not done to the exclusion of the other. So if I just do best practices, and I live in an area where um, bacterial wilt is very common with cucumbers, and I've had this problem before, and I try to do everything that I'm supposed to do right, unless I'm going to go like three years between crops, it's going to be very difficult for me to grow cucumbers without having bacterial wilt. But if I take some resistant varieties and I also do best practices, I may be able to get a lot more success. So, so we will talk a little bit about some best practices as we go as well. And understand that the diseases and the resistant varieties today are a tiny representation. I just wanted to give you a sampling so that you would kind of get the process down and the concept down so that you could go look at your garden this year and say, this particular thing that I really wish did well is not doing well. And I thought maybe I just didn't fertilize enough or whatever. Now that I know to look for these things, I'm going to examine this and I'm going to, I'm going to pretend to be a plant doctor. And I am going to diagnose this using the Internet. Because unlike a lot of diseases that people try to self-diagnose for themselves on the Internet, like do I have ass cancer or something, you actually can do a pretty damn good job. If you can read, recognize patterns, see color, and uh, basically interpret the English language you know, with a reasonable level of accuracy, you can probably figure out any common vegetable illness that your plants have. And then once you have that and you're making your plants for the fall or you're making your plants for next year, you can say, I have conclusively determined that my problem with tomatoes is early blight. 
So I'm going to try Matt's Wild Cherry because it's resistant. And I'm going to do these other practices. That's, that's what I want you to be able to do, including Jack didn't even mention the type of plant I'm growing. He didn't mention the disease that I have. But from the process presented, I was able to figure out that this is what's wrong with my lettuce, and this is a resistant variety for that, and then these are the best practices that go along with them. And then you can decide, like, do I really want to do this, or do I want to say that's just not for me? Or maybe I'm going to take a year off and do some crop rotation. All right? So let's talk about some common vegetables and diseases that they have, along with some resistant varieties. Um, I want to start out with beans, bush, pole, uh, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of beans. There's fava beans, etc. I'm going to stick to bush and pole green beans uh, today with the varieties I recommend, but all of these diseases can affect all beans and many other legumes, let's say chickpeas and things like that as well. Um, I want to start out with rust, and the reason that I want to start out with rust is because it is one of the most common problems gardeners deal with when it comes to beans. It's also commonly misdiagnosed. Um, so rust can occur on all the above-the-ground parts of the plant, but the spots are most numerous on the undersides of the leaves. They begin as tiny, white, slightly raised spots. They'll often break open and become distinct, round, reddish-brown spots. The big thing is when you touch them, there's like a dust-like spore that comes off of them, and then there's like little yellow rings around the plant. So there's actually other things that look a lot like this, and but they won't have that dust. Or if they do have something that comes off of them, it'll be different. Or it'll primarily be on the top of the plant. So I, I, there's, there's more to it. There's a couple paragraphs of things you can look for to be sure that you have bean rust versus something else. But I just want to kind of give you that concept that, like, so you could be looking at your, your bean plant, and maybe what you actually have is brown spot, which we'll talk about next. Well, let me give you some resistant varieties to rust. I'll just give you two for that. Jade 2 bush bean is, is incredibly rust-resistant. It's probably the most rust-resistant bush green bean that there is. Um, Kentucky Wonder is probably the most resistant to rust pole bean that there is. And, you know, Jade 2 is a hybrid. Kentucky Wonder is a very well-known, been-around-forever heirloom. They both have high resistance to rust. But what if you have bacterial brown spot, right? If you have bacterial brown spot, what you're going to see is that you're going to have brown spots that appear as small one-eighth to three-eighths inch circular brown spots on the leaves. It doesn't really look that much different than rust if you if you don't know what you're looking for. Often surrounded by a yellow halo. Brown with a yellow surrounding is something that we often get from rust. The spots will often, though, fall out. And it'll look like maybe somebody came along and shot your bean leaves with really fine bird shot. Rust doesn't do that. Um, there's no bacterial ooze or dust or anything really seen that comes out of the the spots, though. They're more stable. So just that alone would tell you that you're probably dealing with brown spot versus rust. You also are more likely to see rust can affect the bean pods themselves, but 
uh, brown spot is a lot more likely to. So if we start seeing malformed spotted bean pods, we're probably looking at brown spot, not rust. Well, there's really not a lot of beans that are actually resistant to rust and brown spot. They generally tend to be resistant to one or the other. Um, in this case, brown spot resistant varieties seems like Cabot bush bean or Kentucky dreamer uh, bush bean. I really wasn't able to find you guys a pole bean that was resistant to brown spot. There may be some, but I wasn't able to find it. So if you're dealing with brown spot, you may want to say, okay, then I'm going to move down to a bush-only bean, take a different approach to my bean planting, and go with one of these or many of the other varieties that are available out there uh, that do this. And that brings us to my third one. Um, there's a blight that hits beans called halo blight. And it kind of starts out looking a little bit like rust and looking a little bit like brown spot. But as you might imagine, it ends up um, with more of a, a yellow halo. And, and you get a lot more yellow in relationship to the brown. And sometimes the leaves will kind of ball up and look more like tomato blight. And the, the markings that you get on the beans themselves are pretty distinctive. It's pretty obvious that that's what you're looking at. It's hard to describe, but if you look it up, if you have a problem with your beans and you look up halo blight and you look at your beans, you're like, oh, that's what that is. Well, I have talked to a lot of people that have shown me pictures of their beans and say, man, I've got rust. And I look at it and go, that's halo blight. Now you're, now you're looking for, for also bush varieties. Halo blight is something that's very difficult to find, in my experience anyway, a pole bean that is if you have halo blight problems. But Boone, uh, Boone bush and Frontier bush are both halo blight resistant. Sometimes you can find overlap. Like we're going to talk about cucumbers next, and there's a few varieties that we're going to talk about bacterial wilt and mosaic virus that they're resistant to both. With beans, a lot of the work that's been done, you can find some varieties that are resistant to a lot of things, but you're going to have a hard time finding stuff that's resistant to all things. So that makes it really, really important if you're going to take this approach to bettering your production that you're able to specifically say, my problem is, and guess what? There's about a dozen other things that can go wrong with beans that are disease-based. Every single one of them has certain varieties that have been developed or just naturally have resistance to those things. And if you take the approach of finding what's wrong, finding the resistant variety, and then adding to it best practices, a lot of your problems will either go away or be mitigated. If you get to a point where you can grow, let's say, a lot of tomatoes, but eventually still blight gets you, hey, you still got a big production out of it. If you're working your ass off for four tomatoes a plant before the, the plant dies, it's probably not worth doing. So you either need to find a way around it or find something else to grow. Let's move on to cucumbers. Um, the, two, the two diseases that I picked to go over with you today are mosaic virus and bacterial wilt. And the reason I've done this is because this is another one I've talked to so many people that say I have mosaic virus. And there's a lot of incorrect information. I was going to say disinformation, but it's not. To me, disinformation is the person that put the information out knows they're full of shit and did so for the purpose of misinforming you. In this case, the information is even a little bit true, but not really, but maybe sort of, kind of. And the information is that 
the cucumber beetles, which are the little yellow and black spotted beetles, transmit mosaic virus. Cucumber beetles will <clears throat> feed on cucumber plants. They'll feed on corn plants. They'll feed on pepper plants. They'll feed on a lot of things. Um, so, for instance, one of your best practices with cucumbers, don't plant your cucumber close to corn. Because the corn is a natural attractant to uh, the cucumber beetle, but yet the cucumber beetle does almost no real damage to corn. It can do some, but it's not a big deal. Uh, mosaic virus on corn is not typically a big problem. However, mosaic virus on cucumbers is a big problem. Cucumber uh, beetles, though, aren't really a heavy transmitter of mosaic virus. They're actually a heavy transmitter of something called bacterial wilt. It's a lot bigger of a problem than mosaic virus for your cucumbers. And so what really is the big vector? So a vector is something that not, not necessarily hurt you, but it transmits something that hurts you. So mosquitoes are a vector for malaria. If a mosquito bites you, it hurts a little bit. You smack the mosquito, you see some blood, dead mosquito. Might have a little welt, it itches, you're irritated, but it doesn't really hurt you. You're not going to die or even really get sick because of the bite itself. But if that mosquito went and bit somebody that had malaria and transmits the malaria to you, well, now you can get malaria, right? That's what these, a lot of these diseases are being transmitted by insects. And the primary vector for mosaic virus, specifically with cucumbers, is aphids, So people see these little black and yellow beetles on their cucumbers. They go read some forum somewhere where somebody says, yeah, you probably got mosaic virus, and this is, causes your leaves to turn yellow and whatever, and they see that kind of thing starting, and now they're looking to deal with mosaic virus. But if the entire vine just kind of dies, like one day it looks pretty good, then it's a little bit yellow, the next day it looks like, it looks like somebody went out and cut it you know, at a certain point, and everything above that point is dead even though there's no cut, It's probably bacterial will. So if you have mosaic virus, here's some cucumbers you can grow. Market more, 76 and 97. So there's two different ones. They're both numbers. Market more has several, but 76 and 97 are, are ones. Chinese snake, Dasher 2. Um, there's also like a dozen more that are very resistant to mosaic virus. Um, when it comes to bacterial will, there's resistant varieties But none of them are highly resistant. In other words, with mosaic virus, a little bit of best practices, you grow Chinese snake, you might even get some of it, but you're going to get a lot of cucumbers before your vines succumb to it. Bacterial wilt, even if you do a resistant variety, you better be really on your best practices if that's common where you are. And if you live in the south in humid, hot conditions, it probably is. So if you have bacterial wilt, We need that, but we also have some resistant varieties um, that have market more 76, again, so maybe that's a good one to key in on, and 80. Uh, salad bush is another resistant variety of bacterial. Well, saladin and regal, these are all with some level of resistance to bacterial wilt. And, but we've got those damn uh, beetles. And that's the problem. And it, like, I guarantee you, if you have a corn patch and you go out and look right now, if you're not spraying insecticides, you really shouldn't be, um, you're probably going to find cucumber beetles in your corn. 
And that means that you're probably going to find cucumber beetles uh, in your cucumbers. Now, I didn't check into varieties for this. But I did read enough agricultural extension information to realize that if you kept going, you'd probably be able to figure out another way to approach cucumber uh, and reducing bacterial wilt. And that is that there are some varieties that the beetles just aren't as attracted to. They're not really resistant. The beetles just don't like them as much. And you might actually have a, a potential to maybe do some trap cropping. So maybe we do plant our corn way over here and our cucumber way over there. And if we're planting a not-so-attractive cucumber to the beetles, maybe they'll go bother the corn and not really hurt. However, I want you to understand something about all of this. Those little beetle bastards, they can transmit many different types of mosaic virus And things like for a CM wilt and leaves, they can transmit just about anything that they'll touch or come into contact with, especially if it's something they'll feed on that has this infection, gets in their mouth parts, and then they go feed somewhere else. It's, it's just transmitting the disease. So you might want to consider specifically with these cucumber beetles that are really little yellow and black everything beetles, um, eliminating them. Wherein as you can. And I have two organic uh, pesticide controls you can consider. Uh, one is called Spinosad, and you need to make sure you're buying a type of Spinosad that really is an organic uh, pesticide. And you need to be careful with how you use it, where you use it, and how much. And understand it's mostly a contact killer. So it's not a persistent killer. So it's something that's kind of like, oh, there they are, spray. Okay. The other one is called Prethium. Prethium is derived from chrysanthemum. The, the, the thing about it is it's, it's, it's also not persistent. It's not going to make the food toxic to you, so that's good. But it is a very indiscriminate uh, pesticide. It will kill pretty much any insect that gets on if it's at a high enough concentration and a high enough amount for that particular insect. It is primarily what's in wasp and hornet killer. It's just really highly concentrated, and a whole shitload comes out there. So don't think it's not going to kill your beneficials. So it's something you have to use with some care. And then something you can try for uh, cucumber beetles, and something you can try for many insects, is called Calion Clay. And I'll spell that for you because it, it, doesn't, sound, it doesn't spell exactly like it sounds. Calion Clay is K-A-O-L-I-N, Calion Clay. It's clay. It's a grayish-white clay. And what you do is you mix it with water, and you spray plants with it, and then it dries. And it dries like this powdery, dry coating. And when insects eat it, it's very it's nasty-tasting to them. It, does, it dries out their mouths. It doesn't taste good. It, it ruins the food is the one, one way to look at it. Uh, imagine if somebody put a great big juicy steak in front of you, and, and you're like, oh, yeah. And then imagine that you you literally hate mustard, like the smell of mustard makes you sick. And then somebody took that steak and they slathered it in mustard and said, go ahead, eat it. It's kind of what you're trying to do there. And Calion clay can be used. You can spray fruit trees with it. You can spray just about anything with it. The weakness of Calion clay is that, okay, it rained, it's gone. So it's something that has to be reapplied every time that it rains. And by the way, rain is one of the things that really makes this more of a problem. 
Now, cucurbits as a whole, when we say cucurbits as a whole, we're not talking about just cucumbers. We'll throw in other things like squash and stuff like that now. Notoriously are targets of pests and, and, and pest-borne pathogens, squashes, um, certain gourd varieties, etc. Squash bugs, squash vine borers, and then cucumbers. Uh, aphids with uh, mosaic virus, uh, cucumber beetle with bacterial wilt. One of the ways that you can really kind of fix this problem to the point where sooner or later they're probably going to get there, but by the time they do, you've got so much yield you don't really care, and they're not going to get to you until later in the season when the plant is really mature and better able to last and outlast these attacks is uh, net row covers. So if we take, let's say, cucumbers, and I know everybody likes to grow them vertically, because I do. It's the best way to grow a cucumber. The cucumber doesn't lay on the gr in the dirt, so it doesn't rot in the dirt. It grows nice and straight. You make a lot of use out of a narrow space, etc. But it's kind of hard to cover them. But if you go to growing your cucumber or your squash or what have you in rows, and you cover them with row covers... <coughs> And then you watch the flowers start to show up. And it, what usually happens with most cucurbits is when they first flower, it's all male flowers. So until you see female flowers, that's where you see the fruit with a little, little mini fruit, a little mini cucumber with a flower on it. Until you start to see female flowers, you have no advantage by letting any insects in there at all. So you wait till you start to get your female flowers. Then you remove your netting. And then your insects come, both the bad and the good for pollination, and you're going to do a lot better that way. So that's another kind of best practice you can take. Let's go to everybody's favorite two vegetables. Um, one that I, 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 I never have problems growing, and the other one I have massive problems growing. Uh, the first one is the one I have the problems with, and a lot of people in the South do, especially in the last 10 years, and that's tomatoes. And there's three... There's, again, there's a bazillion things. You can get uh, tobacco mosaic virus on tomatoes, right? And it's important to identify. But there's three main things that happen to tomatoes that are devastating to them. One, somewhat, and the other two, completely kill your whole plant, ruin your whole season, devastating. All three of them look very similar to each other, and your resistant varieties generally don't cross all three. So, early blight has this way that the leaves are effective, affected. They kind of turn brown. They kind of turn yellow. Eventually, little branches just fall off. Um, but the big thing about early blight, it starts low on the plant, and it moves really slowly. So, by just doing what we call hard pruning and pruning up about a foot and then letting your growth come from there you can basically outgrow early blight and just by keeping things pruned you can get a really good yield and even if the plant eventually succumbs to it you still feel like it was worth growing your tomatoes late blight as it sounds it comes later in the season it looks initially a lot like early blight same type of yellowing browning of the leaves um, branches your lateral branches Uh, turning yellow and then just falling off. A lot of times it's look, ah, I don't know if that thing's going to make it or not, and you just reach out and tug on it, it just falls off. Um, but unlike 
early blight, it moves really fast. And once it hits your plant, it's like deadly tomato cancer. It moves up the plant. It infects not just the plant, but your tomatoes. Your tomatoes were looking all pretty. Then they start turning like, you think you have blossom end rot, except instead of the tomato just rotting at the end, you've got the whole plant rotting. And the plant ends up just devastated and gone. Okay? And then you have ferrocium wilt. Well, ferrocium wilt, um, you end up with a plant that looks a lot like a plant that had late blight. In the end, they're both plants that just completely died. The big difference between the two is with the wilt, you can either scratch or cut open the stalk, and you'll see a brown line running long ways, and that's the fungus itself growing through the stem, where with late blight, you won't see anything like that. The, the interior of the stem, except for where the stem's actually died, will actually look pretty decent. So those are your three varieties. I'd like to say, hey, here's a, uh, here's a tomato that has resistance to all three. Um, there are some with some resistance to both early and late blight. Uh, I was not able to really find any that were like resistant to late, early, late and early blight and wilt. Um, I am going to definitely grow the Texas wild cherry because it's a wild type and may have resistance to all of them. Um, but here's some interesting ones you can look at. Uh, Juliet, Matt's wild cherry, and Legend are all quite resistant to early blight. And then there's a new one out. It's, it's actually been around a while, but it's kind of new to a lot of supply houses and stuff like that, called Indigo Rose. It's supposed to be highly resistant to let, uh, late blight. Um, Better Boy. And there's one called Black Plum. Black Plum's actually an old Russian variety that all of a sudden is showing up and available in the United States. And if you like Romas, you might really like Black Plum. Imagine that you had a Roma Plum tomato, you know, the, the quintessential canning tomato, one of the best tomatoes in the world for making salsas, great tomato for making pico de gallo. And you had that type of a tomato, that firm, um, heavy-bearing, uh, oblong tomato, but it kind of had like a black crim thing going on in it. It had this dark, purpley, chocolate color and deeper flavor. That's what black plum is. Um, black plum does show some resistance to early and late blight, but specifically is late blight resistant. So that would be one to look at. When it comes to the first sam wool, um, one of the tomatoes that has really great resistance to it is Park's Whopper. That's a very old... Old, it, it, it's, I believe, a hybrid variety, but it's been around forever. Uh, Super Sweet 100 is a relatively new cherry tomato. And Celebrity. Celebrity is incredibly resistant uh, to, to wilt. And this is another one of those things where I, it's, I think it's so important that you get the right diagnosis. So there was a person, for instance, in this audience, and I, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania where a lot of these things just weren't a problem. We just put tomatoes in the ground and they grew. I never saw these. I never saw early or late blight or wilt until I moved to Texas. I, I was a kid in my grandfather's garden. I didn't even know these things existed. So I got down here and I was always having problems with blight. And I had correctly identified both early and late blight as problems that I have. And 
somebody that was in this audience said, hey, Celebrity Tomato is incredibly resistant to blight. I had blight problems all the time. I went to growing nothing but celebrities. I don't have blight anymore at all. So I went out and got some celebrity tomatoes. I put them in the ground. They quickly got blight and died. I'm like, this is bullshit. It wasn't until later that I figured out, well, this dude, for Sam Will, and thought it was blight, and he was right. What he said worked for him, but not for me. And again, when you look at the final death knell of Wilt versus late blight, you have plants that just like kind of rotted to death and died. But if you don't know to open up that stem and you don't know what to look for as it's happening on the leaves, it's easy to confuse the two. So I think that, again, we're back to diagnosis being really important. Real quick on peppers, um, to me, they're probably the easiest and least disease-affected um, plant out there. If the, if, if you, the, the number one reason people have problems with their peppers is another myth. Never fertilize peppers. Um, how do I put this where you'll completely understand how I feel about that advice? Bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Does that make it clear enough? Yes, fertilize your peppers. There'll be giant plants. There'll be no peppers on them. Bullshit. Okay? Bullshit. The number one problem I see with peppers is they're nitrogen deficient. If you look at a pepper plant and its leaves go from a dark green when you put it in the ground to like a light yellow or anything in between, the number one thing to look at is, is there enough nitrogen in that soil? And nitrogen, that damn pepper can get, I don't care how much compost you put on there, it's a cool time of the year, the biological activity's not up, get some uh, blood meal or some other form of high nitrogen organic fertilizer, or if you have to, I will not get upset with anybody that uses 10-10-10 commercial fertilizer. As long as you're also taking care of the soil, use what makes your plants grow. I don't use it. But I wouldn't, you know, if you if it's between that and not having a garden grow well for you, use conventional fertilizer. Just stay away from the really toxic shit when it comes to pesticide and herbicide. Um, but the two that I've seen kind of pop up, one's black bacterial leaf spot, and that can be an issue when it's really wet and extended wet seasons. And here's some varieties you could use. Admiral, Excursion 2, Red Bull, Touchdown. Um, and there's there's quite a few more. And you can look up what it looks like when you get this bacterial leaf spot on peppers. The other one that pops up a lot is uh, tobacco mosaic virus. So tomatoes, tobacco, potatoes, right, peppers, all of them are nightshades. And they all share common diseases that they can get. And there's actually several different mosaic viruses. Peppers actually are a lot worse off if they get computer, uh, cucumber mosaic virus than our tobacco mosaic virus. But tobacco mosaic virus shows up a lot, mainly because people get it on their tomatoes. And tomatoes do okay. They don't just die. It's usually blight or wilt that kills your tomatoes. But then their peppers are nearby, and it can kind of transfer over. Um, some resistant varieties are a Big Bertha, California Wonder, Giant Marconi, Red Crest. In fact, most of the common peppers people grow are highly resistant, at least to a degree. Number one thing you can do for your peppers is make sure that they're fertilized and don't fall for the old-fashioned, don't-give-them-fertilizer bullshit line. Because not only will that make them malnourished, and people say, well, if you fertilize them, they won't produce. 
okay, if you dump a shit ton of fertilizer on them, you can grow pepper plants five, six foot tall. And when they're growing that fast, they don't produce a lot. But it's a misunderstanding. Peppers and tomatoes, all nightshades tend to do this, that produce any kind of a fruit, right? Um, they have a darth, uh, a period of, of non-production, and that is when it gets really, really hot. So you, you plant your peppers. Um, there needs some heat for them to get some aggressive growth. They grow real aggressively, give a big flush of peppers. Then the dog days of summer come on. And so they just don't flower as much. They don't produce as much. Um, growing under shade in the hottest part of the summer, I tend to be able to get production all the way through, but it does slow down. And so what happens is a person fertilizes. The plant does really good. Then the production drops, and then they read this or hear this myth from somebody about not fertilizing, and they say that's the problem. So the next year they don't fertilize. Well, now the plant is weak, and it will only produce a little bit right at the end of the season as it knows it's going to die, as its survival instinct kicks in. And then the person thinks they have a disease, and what they have is a malnourished pepper. So don't let that happen to you. Uh, again, there are tons more diseases than these and many diseases that we think of as this is a disease that affects lettuce can affect a pepper plant or a cucumber plant or whatever so when you see these things pop up go into diagnostic mode getting the right diagnosis is your best weapon and then learn what the best practices are and i'm going to tell you that a lot of these diseases are made worse by humidity and there's two things that we have to worry about when it comes to humidity. One is the relative humidity. It's humid, period. Okay? No matter how humid it is or it isn't, airflow is really important to how much humidity is in this one spot. So even if humidity is relatively high, if we have poor airflow, it's higher than the, uh, the, the relative humidity in this one spot. Okay, Tomatoes the blight hugely fed by humidity. Uh, humidity to tomato blight is what sugar is to cancer. It makes it even, even the late blight that's quick, it makes it quicker. It makes it faster. It makes it more susceptible to initial infection, you name it. So the number one thing you can do with your tomatoes is plant them in a place where you can stake them, keep them up high, and have 360-degree airflow around them so that you can walk all the way around that plant. The next thing is train a main central leader straight up and, and practice hard pruning. Basically, all your little side shoots that are going to be fruiting suckers is what they're called. So you'll have two different ways that you'll see um, side limbs come off tomato. And it's hard to explain. So if you just, like, if you go to YouTube and search for pruning tomatoes, you'll find tons of people show you how to do this. And the ones that are actually going to be fruiting side shoots, we remove those. And then they're just our straight laterals that are just basically leaves that exist for the purpose of um, getting you know energy for the plant. We leave those. And we let that central leader, kind of like we grow a, a columnar or a spindle apple tree, we do that with a tomato with an annual. And what that does is instead of having this huge bush that has all this trapped humidity, air can flow around. And you, if you use a resistant variety to whatever your biggest problem is, and you keep this practice, you get really good yields. 
um, you actually get higher yields. It seems crazy, but you do because the, the plant can use all its energy instead of dividing it up against all these. So a big bushy plant will have less fruit than a good narrow stocky plant, right? So that's, that's the biggest thing you can do with tomatoes. In fact, one of the biggest things you can do with everything is make sure you have good air circulation. Prune off undergrowth, what have you. When you get diseased plants, you need to know what you have and you need to find out, is this a disease that if I throw this in a compost heap um, and I'm doing kind of a slow, long compost, it will, it will be processed or not. Or if you're doing a fast, very hot compost, you know, turning and doing like a 21-day process, will that kill it? And if the answer to both or whatever you're doing is no, then you either need to remove that plant material or you need to burn it. Uh, because what will happen then inevitably is you're propagating late blight or you're pop propagating uh, uh, early blight or you're propagating mosaic virus or something like that. Uh, make sure that you're mulching. The way that you water is important. Watering only to the soil instead of wetting the plant goes a long way. But, you know, when it rains, Mother Nature does what Mother Nature is going to do. Wicking beds are great for the same reason. But when it rains, Mother Nature does what Mother Nature is going to do. We can do a better job of fighting these battles. We can get more production. But in the end, there's no silver bullet here. The best we can do is diagnose the problem and take corrective action. I would also advise you, as always, I'm a huge fan of Howard Garrett. He has a lot of individualized treatments for these using things like cornmeal tea, uh, using things like hot pepper garlic tea uh, as, as a foliar spray and as a, a soak. Uh, using garlic goes systemic through the plant, turns uh, many insects off on feeding them. A lot of the stuff he says works. I think some of it works exactly the way he says. I think some of it works because it's not necessary, because his other practices are so good, the plants are healthy. So I'm not saying everything you read there is going to be uh, is dramatically effective, but it's all worth giving a shot. But don't be afraid to use hybrids. And do go find varieties that are resistant to the most chronic problems that you have. And I always say this, though. In the end... If it's more work than it's worth for you to grow tomatoes, grow other things and buy your tomatoes. In the end, if it's more work than it's worth for you to buy cucumbers, they're pretty cheap, then grow other things and buy cucumbers. Consider things like growing out of time. So one of the things that we can do is we can start plants inside and protected and put them out late in the season, more toward the fall garden when the pest activity is down, Or we can have plants extremely well started so they're into production very, very early before the pest activity is up. All of those things work. If you have a chronic problem, something that just won't go away, stop growing that thing for three years and try again. Grow other things for three years. Three years is generally the timeline. It's enough that whatever is there kind of dies off. It doesn't have a place to procreate and what have you. And then learn some things that won't matter. Some things will be able to procreate and live on a lot of your weeds and other plants without really harming them, but then when they hit that particular variety, they really hit it hard. So you want to make sure that you're thinking about that as well as you're figuring out 
how to combat these common problems. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you enjoyed today's show. A little bit different than anything we've done recently, uh, but it is the kind of thing that I think helps people become better gardeners and helps people get more production because we're not out growing gardens uh, when it comes to food production uh, for the experience alone. If we're not getting an ROI, we either need to take corrective action so we can get that ROI, we need to put our effort somewhere else. Uh, killing yourself uh, and putting in, you know, let's say, 20 hours of work to produce $5 worth of vegetables, that's not a positive ROI. I, I guarantee you that if you take to heart shows like today's, other shows we've done on the subject, and you find what works for you, you find the right varieties of the right plants for your climate, for the amount of work that you want to do, and for the reality on the ground, your garden can be profitable. But it should be profitable, or you need to make some changes, because then you're just you're basically spending money to work. And you guys know me, I'm not about that. I don't spend money to work. I work to make money. I think that's a better way to be. And it doesn't matter if it's cash or it doesn't matter if it's material that I don't have to spend money on, like food, right? Either way, that works. But negative cash flow for your labor is a bad way to be. That's worse than being a slave, at least in some ways. With that, again, we are done for the day. I'd love your questions on this. Anything I can do to help you with, just let me know. You can send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. For this or any other matter, make sure you put... TSPC in the subject line. That'll let me know it's for the show. And if it ends up in the spam uh, box, I'll be able to get it out. If you want to support the show, there's a couple ways to do that. Once become a member, all you got to do to do that is go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members, sign up, become a member of the MSB, get the discounts, including on a great number of providers of seeds for your gardening. And if you use those discounts every year, your membership will more than pay for itself. I promise you it really will. The other way is you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the items that I reviewed on Amazon over the years broken down into individual categories. Those categories are alphabetized, and you can check it out that way. Today I have a product for you that if you're a gardener and you grow a lot, you're really going to like. If you grow a lot over a long time, Let's say you're the kind of person that gets, you know, half a dozen tomatoes a, a week that you can't eat. Um, you don't want to can that, do you? That doesn't make sense. We can do canned 6, 12 tomatoes. Yeah, you can tomatoes when you have bags of them. But you can fire up your dehydrator and throw some tomatoes in there and some peppers in there and some other things in there. And do a little at a time over time and just keep adding them to ball jars or something like that. And when it comes to dehydrators, the Excalibur dehydrator is the way to go. In fact, I'm going to put it this way. If you're not going to buy an Excalibur dehydrator, buy a dehydrator that's less than 50 bucks. Because you're going to buy, nothing is going to be as good. And so you might as well just go ahead and buy cheap. And when it blows up and burns out, you throw it away and get another one. Go down, to, go down to a Habitat store or Goodwill or something. Get one down there if you're not going to buy an Excalibur. Or go to Walmart, get the cheapest damn thing they have. And, and use it until you decide you want something better and then get yourself an Excalibur. The problem is, Excaliburs are expensive, 200, 300 bucks. Uh, the two that I recommend are the 2900 series and the 3926. The, the 2900 is normally 219 bucks and the 3926 is 295. I make a pretty good case for you don't need the more expensive one, even though I own it myself. 
Um, however, however, the reason I'm running this today is that's not true today. The 3926 that's normally $295 is on sale as a deal of the day on Amazon for $191. Uh, it's $103 off. Um, the 2900 is on sale for $180. So now you can get the better one for $11.99 more. Get the better one. And if you've been waiting to buy an Excalibur, they don't get knocked down. To a, the, the best thing they make does not get knocked down to $190 very often. So I wanted to bring it around today for that. I also wanted to tell you my article on this is very in-depth. If you want to really understand dehydrating, if you really want to understand the differences between them, how to use them, etc., you want to read the article today. And I also explained why you shouldn't buy anything more from Excalibur than uh, the 2900 series. And this is why. Everything else is either unnecessary or overpriced. They have one with a clear door so you can look at it. I have never been fascinated by the dehydration of a tomato, and if you really want to look at it, you can open it up and look in there. Uh, they have one with a timer. It's like 60 bucks more uh, for a timer. Uh, no. No. For $12, you can get a mechanical timer and plug it into the wall and plug your, your Excalibur into that, and then that timer does other things when the Excalibur is not running. Like there, there is no reason to do more than what the 2900 series does, uh, so that's what I'm going to recommend. So I would recommend you check out the article. How do you make sure that you don't miss things like this? Join the Daily Mail. Go by to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on subscribe. Fill out the form. You'll get an email once a day with everything new for that day. One email, once a day, that's it. On rare occasions, something like this might pop up. I didn't do it today, but sometimes, like, if, if this was going to be, like, a lightning deal, this is deal of the day, so it's good for the whole day. Sometimes they have lightning deals and stuff's, like, for four hours when I find out about it. Then I might send, you know, on rare occasions, once a quarter or something, an email say, hey, I want you to know about this right away. But that's why I do it. That's why you should be on the list. This way you won't miss anything, you know, everything that's going on. And I tell you, sometimes there's stuff in that email list or on that email about maybe a YouTube video or something on Instagram or something. Even if you don't follow it there, you can go look at it. It's kind of cool and different, and sometimes it's stuff that's kind of backdoor, personal-level stuff about my life that some of you guys find interesting, and I share it on the list only because it's kind of a... Way of me paying you back for letting me stay in touch with you. So do join the list if you haven't yet. With that, let's talk about the song of the day today. It's Freddie Mercury Week. And if you know Freddie's uh, body of music outside of his work with Queen, you, you'd probably expect that this song had to be uh, in Freddie Mercury Week. Because most of the songs this week, except for the one I changed yesterday myself, are solo acts uh, with Freddie without the rest of the band. Um, this one's called Time. It was actually done for a musical that's called time. And the line in it is, time waits for no one. That's a very famous line for many places. And this really hits home with the message of this show, doesn't it? Because I tell you guys all the time, you are either working on more freedom and liberty and independence in your life, or life is moving you in the other direction. And that's because time indeed doesn't wait for anybody. There is very few things that you can 100% know with 100% accuracy about the future. Very few. There are a gazillion variables. 
Everybody's probably seen some of like the alternative universe episodes of Star Trek or something where you know somebody wakes up in an alternative universe and they're a completely different person in that. And all the people around them are completely different. Maybe the good guys are the bad guys or who knows what else. And whether that's actually a thing or not, we don't know. Science postulates that it's possible but not necessarily probable. And some of the formulas say it's probable but not necessarily possible if that's a thing. Um, But there's a reason for the theory. And the reason is that, you know, today you're going to walk out your front door. And a very insignificant decision could be made to go to the left instead of the right that could alter your life forever. It's that big a deal. So we don't know a lot about tomorrow. We don't know. Even when the weather guesser says, there's a 100% chance of rain, it, it might not rain. There's some things with high probability we can guess, but there is something we know about tomorrow at this exact time. But every time you're listening to this, even if you're listening to this five weeks after I published it or five years, this is what we know about tomorrow at the exact moment. As I look at this, I got a late start today. It's 3.59 p.m. I know with 100% certainty, with only one variable, assuming I am still alive, at 3.59 tomorrow, I will be one day older. I will be 24 hours older. My body will have aged that much. If I'm a child, my body will have grown, and however much it will grow. It will, the one thing we know about time is it will move. And we will be older. And all of the increments between point A and point B, whatever opportunities were there that we didn't take, they're gone. We can now do those things with other time. But time is like it's like spending money that's never coming back. In some ways it's way more valuable than money. That's what this song's really all about. What are you doing with your time? In other words, what are you doing with that dash that one day after you're gone and they write a couple dates down, they'll put in between those two dates. That dash is you. Make the most of it. Time is indeed, for all of us, sooner or later, going to run out. We are all mortal. We all pass from this earthly earthly plane. What we do while we're here is what's important. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with one another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Nobody, nobody 